Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word, in Orlando. Now, Alan Dempsey, uh, who has been voted many times Engineer of the Year, he's our engineer, and uh, Andrew Herdliska produces this show, and uh, we couldn't uh, get on the air without him. And uh, I'm so pleased in his first segment, Dr. Eamon Ibrahim. He's in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he is a professor. He's a teacher. He's a leader at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, the author of A Concise Guide to the Koran, answering 30 critical questions. Boy, we're going to have a good visit uh, Dr. Ibrahim, welcome to Orlando, Florida. How are you, my friend? I am doing well, and thank you so much, Pat, for the invite. I'm grateful for it. You open your book with a question. What is the Quran? Uh, fill us in. The Quran is the most sacred text for 1.6, 1.7 billion um, believers in Islam, um, believers in Islam are Muslims, and the Quran is their holy text in which they uh, receive um, knowledge about the deity of Islam and about um, um, the character of that deity and the deeds of that deity. It's, uh, it's their scripture to be uh, concise. Second question. What does Quran mean? For most Muslims, the word Quran means um, um, uh, the, the, the scripture, which comes from uh, an Arabic word that means read. But scholars have argued for a different origin for the word Qur'an to mean liturgical text, if we consider some origins in Syriac or even Hebrew uh, origins for the word. Third question. Are there other scriptures in Islam? No. No other scriptures, but there are other important books for Muslims in Islam that tell Muslims of the history and of the uh, um, um, like development of the faith. But only one scripture, and it is the Quran. What do Muslims believe about the Quran? This is one of the most important questions in the book, because if you understand this question, you'll understand a lot of what Muslims do about the Quran. So, in short, they believe it is a book that is including the literal revelations from the deity of Islam. And that is, um, the book is dictated from Allah in heaven through angel Gabriel to Muhammad, and it's letter by letter, word by word. So what Muslims hold in their hands today is the exact literal description of Allah's speech. Now, I want you to move to the next question. 
Who is Muhammad, the recipient and proclaimer of the Quran? I love how you pronounce it, Pat. That's the Quran. That's a very good pronunciation, by the way. And <laughs> uh, Muhammad is, for Muslims, the last and final prophet sent by uh, the same deity who sent Moses, for example. That's in the Muslim understanding. And Muhammad is the best uh, example of humankind. That's what Muslims believe. Of course, non-Muslims always think critically about uh, the story of Muhammad's life, but our Muslim friends always think that the best example of humankind is Muhammad, and he was born in Mecca in around 570 A.D. and died in Medina in 632 A.D. So that's what they believe in short about Muhammad. Did Muhammad really exist? Of course, Muslims believe he did, and it's uh, and his life is exactly as described in the Muslim sources. But the problem is, these Muslim sources were written almost two centuries after Muhammad, which really shed doubt about its reliability and uh, authenticity as a clear description of uh, Muhammad's life. So many scholars said, I don't want, they, they don't want to rely on the Muslim sources because of their late dates and uh, contradictions. So they go early to contemporary non-Muslim sources written during the time of Muhammad, allegedly, and they find a different description of that Muhammad. So did Muhammad exist? Most likely he did, but did he exist as Muslim, the Muslim sources described? There are some doubts about that. My guest from Louisville, Kentucky, Dr. Eamon Ibrahim. We're talking about his book, A Concise Guide to the Quran. When and where did Muhammad receive the Quran, doctor? He received it, uh, according to the Muslim tradition, in 610. The revelation began in 610 and continued for almost 23 years until he died in Medina. And now we move to the next topic, number seven, number eight. What is the most important feature of the language of the Quran? Muslims say it's Arabic. And Arabic is a beautiful language. That's what Muslims believe. Because if Arabic is so unique and um, uh, so beautiful, then the Quran must be inimitable, unmatched in its character. So this is something that is important for Muslims to emphasize. Now I want you to answer this question. Why and how was the Quran compiled? This is another very important question in the book, and I encourage everyone to read it, because Muslims believe that the Quran they hold in their hands today is the exact copy that is proclaimed by Muhammad in the 7th century. However, when we read how and when uh, 
this Quran was compiled and why we read a very um, interesting story because Muhammad never compiled the Quran according to the vast majority of Muslims. Muhammad even didn't know how to read or write according mm. to the vast majority of Muslims. So several years after his death, the followers of Muhammad had to go around to collect scattered texts of the Quran from many places. And we are told by the Muslim history that the collection was very meticulous and very accurate to the exact description of Muhammad's revelation. So this is the general Muslim idea and the Muslim claim. However, scholars believe that there is a lot of um, doubts about this, and the Quran took centuries to develop and to be as the copy we have today. Final remark here is that the copy we have today in the hands of Muslims is actually a product of the previous century, 1924 in Cairo. That was when Muslim scholars selected one manuscript and made it the, length, the, 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 the sacred text in the Muslim community. Dr. Amon Ibrahim is our guest from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. We're talking about his book, A Concise Guide to the Quran, answering 30 critical questions. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. We are having a very informative chat with Dr. Eamon Ibrahim, uh, A Concise Guide to the Quran. That's the name of his book. Doctor, we've arrived at question number 10. Did Uthman burn false and forge Qurans? What, what's all that mean? Well, Uthman, Uthman was the third caliph of Islam after Muhammad, the third successor. And Muslims believed, believed that he did a great favor to the Muslims, to the Muslim community, by gathering, by collecting, by compiling the Quran as we have it today. However, when we read the story of him collecting the Quran, we read that he decided that every other available Quran at his time that did not match his text had to be burnt. So actually we have a historical figure for Muslims that burnt the Quran. The question is, was this an act of burning reliable Qurans? We don't have an answer for that, but we also don't know if he had a clear process of deciding what is good and what is bad in terms of Quran manuscripts. Now, doctor, talk to us about what do Shiite Muslims believe about the collection of the Quran? They believe that all what Sunni Muslims say about the collection of the Quran is a mere fallacy because 
these um, Muslims who collected the Quran after Muhammad were not godly or pious. Shia Muslims believe that Muhammad is the one who compiled the Quran and entrusted it to his son-in-law, Ali. So there is a major disagreement among Muslims about the reliable collection of the Quran. Now I want you to uh, get into this topic. Do Sunnis and Shiites have the same Quran today? The shortest answer is yes, but if we dig deeper, we realize that Shia Muslims say that there are missing parts of the Quran. There are missing chapters in the Quran. And this actually is a very important claim because it made people think that, well, the Quran is not preserved as the vast majority of Muslims claim. The Quran has missing parts, missing chapters, or missing verses. So the dispute between Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims about the Quranic text is an interesting topic to read in my book. Next topic for you. What do we know about the 1924 Royal Cairo edition of the Quran? This is what I just mentioned earlier, that we didn't have the Quran we hold in our hand today until the previous century. In the uh, previous century, uh, a, 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 a group of scholars came together and decided that there are some errors in the Quran that have been around, so they wanted to have one sacred text. So they destroyed everything else and, and kept only one version that is called the 1924 Royal Cairo edition of the Quran, and it was printed more and more by the um, patronage of Saudi Arabia to advance the printing of the Quran. Two questions merged into one. Are there any other Qurans? And are all Arabic versions of the Quran the same? Yes, there are other Qurans, and no... Not all Arabic versions of the Quran are the same, and I will leave this for people to read. How should I begin reading the Quran? That's an interesting question. In this book, I provide different tools and different ways for anyone who wants to read the Quran, and I encourage them to see the text so that they can evaluate it for themselves. Now I want you to explain to us, what are the recurring features at the beginning of all surahs? Explain that there, to us. There are three, three features that, that appear in the beginning of each surah, of each chapter in the Quran. There is a location, there is a phrase, and there is... Um, um, uh, more than uh, like you, you will you will find this in the book, but appear, but in this book in this uh, chapter, you will realize that every single chapter in the Quran has 
three reoccurring features. And now, doctor, what is abrogation in the Quran? To put it simply, Muslims believe that if there are two contradicting verses in the Quran, the verse that was revealed later would cancel or annul the earlier verse. There is more to tell about this, and I refer to the chapter for your audience. Uh, next question. What are the satanic verses in the Quran? This is a very interesting chapter because according to Muslim history, at some point in Muhammad's life, he was deceived by Satan and proclaimed verses that find their way to reach the sacred Muslim text. So this is a very interesting um, chapter that I would encourage people to just read. Now I want you to talk about what is the most important concept for Muslims in the Quran. Muslims claim that the major concept that, that unites them is the concept of Allah's strict monotheism. Allah is one. Allah is not three. Allah is not triune. Allah is one. The interesting thing is that the word for Allah's oneness never occurred in the Quran of course, we find verses that speak of Allah's oneness, but this is also a very important chapter in the book for your audience to explore. Are Jews and Christians infidels? This is uh, part of the analysis of the text of the Quran, and I would say I will list this as an interesting point for your readers to investigate. but. Just know that the word infidel is uh, a stigma against many. So did the Quran really say that Jews and Christians are infidel? That's an, uh, an interesting point to investigate. Does the Quran really say the Bible is corrupt? I say no, but many Muslims believe the Quran states that the Bible is corrupt. But in this chapter, I show why the Bible cannot be corrupted based on the text of the Quran. Who is Jesus in the Quran, doctor? Jesus in the Quran is um, a prophet, exactly like Muhammad. He is not the son of God. He is not God. And he performed some miracles. Some of the miracles are like the Bible. And some of the miracles are actually from the Apocrypha. Um, so it's a mixture between the biblical Jesus and the mythical Jesus. More on this in the chapter. Who are the prophets in the Quran? The Quran has several prophets, some of whom are biblical prophets like Abraham, like Moses, and some of them are very much uh, from uh, outside the canon, the biblical canon. So it's very interesting when you read this chapter to see people from the Bible and people from outside the Bible. 
Did Muhammad perform miracles? The Quran emphatically says no. But Muslims today had to claim that Muhammad actually performed miracles because he had to be like Jesus and Moses. So many authors in the Islamic history, as we know, created stories about Muhammad performing miracles. What does the Quran say about jihad and fighting? It's a big topic, but very important. I will let you readers understand about it as they read this chapter. How do Muslims treat the Quran's verses on violence today? Very important chapter in the book as well. But I can say that our Muslim neighbors are not all the same. So we have people who really think that the Muslim, the, the Quranic verses about violence are only about historical uh, incidents. They are not from to be prescriptive for today. However, there are very tiny minority among Muslims who still believe that every word in the Quran is this is prescriptive for today. It's not only descriptive of the past. That means that the Quran, as it is today, should be applied. And I speak in this chapter about a variety, a diversity among Muslims. It's a very important chapter to read. Who are the people of the Quran? Many Muslims today want to get rid of the traditions of Islam, because many of them are really uh, violent and um, embarrassing in some uh, aspects. So they want to stick to the Quran. It's like sola scriptura for them. And um, it's a growing in number because uh, in recent years, many people found um, many uh, um, interesting, but not in a good way, claims in the Muslim tradition. So they want to get rid of the tradition and focus on Islam scripture alone. What do today's non-Muslim scholars say about the Quran? If the Muslims, uh, com- if the Muslim community around us insists that the Quran is the exact word of Allah that was proclaimed by Muhammad, non-Muslim scholars say, well, no, there are some pieces of evidence that say that the Quran took centuries to be edited and developed. Um, So there is a disagreement uh, within the um, uh, scholarly community between Muslim and non-Muslim scholars. And then, doctor, uh, there is a concluding question. How does this all fit together? It doesn't fit at all, but it helps uh, our audience to understand that Islam is not monolithic. There is a lot of um, different claims in Islam. And I want to encourage your reader, um, to re- your, your audience to, re- to read this book because it gives them a window into the Muslim community and the way they revere the scripture of Islam. 
but it also gives them a chance to have a good conversation with Muslims around many critical questions that actually would help us all think about the Muslim claims and the Islamic understanding of things. Our guest has been Dr. Ayman Ibrahim, author of A Concise Guide to the Quran, answering, answering 30 critical questions. Before the break, I do want to remind you uh, that we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a huge help. Just go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com. And uh, check it out, orlandodreamers.com. And just check in with us. Say, good idea. I'd like to be part of this. Tell me more. Keep me posted. Orlandodreamers.com. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're tuned to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. Dr. Eamon Ibrahim, our guest in that first segment uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. Daniel Hill is with us. Uh, He's the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church, located in West Humboldt Park, Chicago. His book is out, White Lies, Nine Ways to Expose and Resist the Racial Systems that Divide Us. Daniel, welcome. Nice to greet you here in Orlando, Florida. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you. It's such an honor to be on your show. You have an introduction to your book. It's called The Parasite of White Supremacy. Uh, What's that intro mean? Yeah, well, that term white supremacy is a very charged term and one that's difficult for a lot of people to hear. And so um, I share one of the ways that Dr. Willie Jennings approaches it. And um, he talks about it kind of this ideology that's assigns human value to people, plays God, really, in a lot of ways, but kind of masquerades is um, kind of a Christian companion. And so um, he talks about, you know, parasite, of course, is a nasty little organism that can't survive without attaching itself to a host. And so he says that, in a lot of ways, white supremacy has had to attach itself to Christianity to have a chance to survive. And so I think for Christians in particular, white Christians in particular, um, there's a real responsibility we have to understand how that ideology works and how it's attached itself to Christianity in order to survive. Your book breaks down into nine practices. Practice one is called Stop Being Woke. What's that mean? Well, it's, you know, there's two kinds of conversations I tend to be with in white Christians. One is a group that's not really thinking about this at all, and so that's one kind of conversation of how to become aware of this and develop an understanding of vocabulary for it. And then there's another group who actually does see that racism is a problem and is beginning to wrestle with terms of white supremacy. And the term woke is often used to um, describe kind of this, I don't know, almost kind of an arrival point, almost this destination where you totally get it, you totally understand everything. And, um, you know, I'm just trying to rely heavily on biblical ideas where, you know, in the Christian life, you don't arrive at sanctification or, you know, the, the full measure of maturity, right? It's always an ongoing process of learning and growing. And the sophisticated nature of how um, racism continues to morph itself and impact our society requires a constant stance of learning and growing and being willing to um, do self-reflection and introspection and understand how it's operating in the world. And so 
um, I think the term can become dangerous because it, it, it creates this picture of a final destination point that I don't think is ever something we should even be hoping for. Um, second practice, beware of diversity. Yeah, so, you know, what, as we talked about a moment ago, one of the terms we really try to use a lot throughout the book is white supremacy, um, which is not describing white racist people. It's describing an ideology that uh, assigns superiority to white folks and inferior to black folks and measures everybody in between. And um, I think that's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's a rival God in so many ways. And so that's the core problem we're up against. And that's the core problem that I think churches should be preaching to and organizing against. And so um, diversity can be a really powerful tool in that journey of identifying and confronting the sin of white supremacy. Um, But too often diversity gets mistaked as an end instead of a means to an end. Uh, So to say it a different way, if if historically white church, you know, can move from 100 percent white to 80 percent white and begin to welcome people of other backgrounds in. Yeah, I think that's a positive stride. But if that gets kind of interpreted as we've now addressed the problem of race, white supremacy, then uh, it actually can hinder the, the progress because uh, we treat it as an end instead of a means to an end. Uh, let's move to uh, topic number three, clearly define race. Yeah, this is, you know, this was the most sophisticated part for my own personal journey. Um, I, I think a lot of us use terms interchangeably. We talk about a multicultural church, a multi-ethnic church, a multiracial church. You know, those terms typically kind of all mean the same thing. And so race to me was just simply describing human beings. You know, I'd often hear the phrase, there's only one human race. Uh, but really, race is a very specific term, um, and it's it's a sinful term, really. It's, it's one I think is important for Christians to understand. Uh, so uh, in the book, I differentiate between ethnicity and race. So ethnicity, I think, reflects, you know, that comes from the Greek word ethnos. That word is in the Bible all the time, go and reach all the nations, um, which is what ethnos, nation, or ethnicity represents. And so at an ethnic na- nation level, you know, we are reflections of God. And Acts 17, Paul says, God has appointed the times where each of us would live, marked our boundaries. So I think who we are at an ethnic nation, national level is a reflection of God's design. Race is a system uh, that almost everybody agrees was designed by human beings um, to recategorize human value. And, you know, it's very tied to um, making sense of slavery and other kind of really kind of important things that have happened. And so the, it's, a, it's a human-made system, whereas ethnicity is God-made. Uh, race is a, is a human-made system that was really designed to discriminate and oppress certain people, and therefore its origins and its operation are really pretty evil and can't be redeemed. So I think being able to have a clear sense of what that word means and how it's different than what the Bible is describing in terms of our ethnicity or nationality is a really important distinction for Christ followers to make. Daniel Hill is with us. We're talking about his book. White lies. And uh, Daniel, let's get to practice number four. Attack the narrative. Uh, What's that mean? Well, you know, building on the last concept we did of defining race, race is really built off of this narrative or the story that's completely a lie. But the story is a rival story to the Bible. The Bible says all human beings are equal because we're created in God's image. The story behind race says, no, we're not actually created equal, that there's this racial hierarchy. 
um, with whiteness on top and blackness on the bottom and everybody else in between. And uh, that's how we should organize society is based on that narrative, based on that story that human value is tied to a racial hierarchy. So it's a profoundly Christian problem because it's challenging the biblical ideal of human life, and it's built on lies, and of course Christianity is built on truth. (laughs) So uh, 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 the narrative is the heartbeat of how race works. And so for those who are kind of organizing and trying to follow Jesus into this, um, I think it's really important that we're able to detect the narrative, the set of lies, the story that operates race. Practice number five is called Duel with the Devil. Uh, tell (laughs) Tell us more. Well, most most folks have been trained to think of racism and race as a, kind of a purely social problem, that there's social inequalities, there's economic inequalities, and I, those are certainly true. I would never want to take attention away from those. Uh, but, you know, the Bible often reminds us, I'm thinking most specifically of Ephesians 6 right now, right? The Bible often reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's not against people. It's against principalities and powers of darkness. And so it can be a little bit spooky to have kind of conversations around how principalities and powers of darkness work, but I really think you can boil it down. You know, we could have whole conversations just on this, but I think you can really boil it down in the Bible that the way evil works is through lies. Um, the, in John chapter 8, Jesus says the devil is, is a liar. His native tongue is that of lies. He's the father of lies. And so wherever lies are operative, you know that principalities of evil are nearby. And so I don't think you can really confront and dismantle white supremacy without having kind of a deeply spiritual framework that understands that there's principalities of evil that utilize lies to continue to advance this system that we're up against. Now, and we're talking, folks, to uh, Daniel Hill, author of White Lies. Practice number six, tell the truth. What's up? Well, you know, I think this this speaks to one of the real conundrums we have in, you know, particularly white Christian spaces, is, is that Truth is the bedrock of our entire faith, and in most subject matters, it's relatively easy for us to tell the truth. Um, you know, in, in most white Christian spaces, you know, you're not going to get a lot of pushback if you have a tell the truth Sunday about the sanctity of life and the need to protect the unborn. You know, in most Christian spaces, you're not going to have a problem with the tell the truth Sunday about the dangers of sexual immorality or pornography or something like that and the need to tell the truth about that. Uh, but in most white Christian spaces, if you have a tell the truth Sunday about the dangers of white supremacy. Um, there is a ton of pushback. Uh, people often think it's suddenly a political agenda or a social agenda, and it's it's this kind of unusual but very important dynamic to pay attention to that we're comfortable having tell-the-truth conversations around other subject matters in society, but we're kind of conditioned to have this very visceral response and conversations around racism and the white supremacy. And so um, in that chapter, I'm really kind of building up to that. That, that really is the work to do, is to call the narrative of white supremacy a lie, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth, and to move in that direction. Uh, but we also have to realize that in most spaces, that's actually not a very easy thing to do at this point in history that we're in. And then, Daniel, choose your friends wisely. Uh, tell us more. Well, uh, you know, there's this revelation that happens for a lot of us who are white when we start to do this work, that our, our worlds are very white. You know, our our, our, our inner circles of who have shaped us, our mentors, you know, the people that we listen to. And so uh, that practice is really about creating guidance of um, how to be wise once you discover that your inputs and your formative kind of relationships have mostly been, you know, from from the white spaces. 
how to be thoughtful and wise around um, beginning to expose yourself and learn from and be shaped by other voices who are able to see the gospel in the world, you know, in ways that we tend to not be able to based on kind of our social location. And then we move to the next topic, interrogate power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the most sophisticated of all of them. And for somebody who is new to the conversation, it's not necessarily the starting point, but, you know, uh, the, the the way the system of races work is it's organized society so that in almost every space, it's white folks who are kind of in power and control of everything. And so um, that is a very important and very delicate process to examine how we got there, um, what it looks like to shift, what it looks like to not just, again, create diverse spaces, but to look at leadership structures, decision-making structures, and really ask kind of big questions around, you know, how did it end up the way it is right now, and what would it look like to evolve into a more healthy expression? Daniel Hill is with us. The book, White Lies. Practice nine, repent daily, uh, you write. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is a very explicitly Christian book, and uh, I, I really do believe that the answer to the problems of race are found in Jesus Christ. I think that's where the, the most power is going to come from. So every practice is really oriented around something that's already true in the Christian life, so that just needs to be applied to the dismantling of the system of race. Uh, but nowhere is that clearer than this last one, you know, where... Um, repentance, a lot of us think of repentance strictly as saying sorry for something we did wrong, and I don't want to say that that's not repentance, but I don't think that's actually the heartbeat of what repentance is in the Bible. I think, you know, it's a beautiful word, metanoia, it's got two two different parts, meta, which is very transformation-oriented, and noia, which is very kind of very much about how we see the world. So repentance is about having a transformation in how we see the world, to, as the Apostle Paul calls it, to take on the mind of Christ. You know, so it's I think of this this repentance very much like in John chapter three when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, you know, you you've got a connection to God, I don't. What do I need to do? And he's thinking of it as a checklist of activities he needs to do. And Jesus instead says, nobody can be born again. You know, nobody can see the kingdom of God without being born again, which comes only through the Spirit. And um, that's repentance language, right? That's seeing something that you didn't see before. It's, it's a it's a complete revolution, you know, led by the Holy Spirit. And so I, I think there's a tendency for those of us that care about this to kind of figure out what are the activities, what are the do's. And while I'm not saying there not, aren't activities we can engage in, uh, what I am suggesting is that the deepest, most transformative work is taking on the mind of Christ to see the system of race as rival ideology to Jesus and how he works in the world, and to daily acknowledge that I don't, I don't have the mind of Christ to the degree that I need to, and I'm, I'm submitting to Christ, asking the Holy Spirit to continue to transform me to be able to see the world as Jesus does. My guest is Daniel Hill. Uh, D- Daniel will be back. We've got a second segment with him. Uh, I do want to just uh, update you. Uh, the latest book I've written has just come out. It's called The Reluctant Leader. And we look at this topic, um, which is kind of an interesting one. Uh, men and women who have opportunities to lead, but in often many cases, they're reluctant. I'm too busy. Or um, get somebody else. I'll help, but I don't want to have that responsibility. Uh, we dive into that topic uh, of why men and women are reluctant to lead and how, how badly we need them 
uh, to step up and be leaders in all segments of society. Uh, Advantage Media Group put the book out. It's called The Reluctant Leader. I, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we're back for more with Daniel Hill right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We're back on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Daniel Hill is our guest. Daniel, we finished uh, diving through your book. Why was it important for you to write this book? Why is it important for people to read it? I don't want to risk overstating the problem, but I, I, I would I would suggest that not just in our current climate, which of course we see this. We, you know, in, in recent memory, we had the storming of Capitol Hill. You know, earlier this year, we had um, the uprisings after um, the shooting of George Floyd and others. You know, but even outside of the immediacy of now, you know, I think we can look historically first in society and see that the inability to kind of grapple with the problem of race and white supremacy continues to be one of the most undermining um, challenges for us and kind of living into the fullness of the vision that we have for our country. And um, for me as a Christian, as a pastor, you know, I see this as a tremendously important discipleship issue that, um, you know, learn and follow Jesus has to happen kind of in the context of the world that we live in. And there are rival gods. There, there are challenges to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Right? That's one of the reasons why I think it's important to talk about white supremacy. Right? Colossians 1, Jesus says, uh, Paul says that the purpose of Jesus in all things is that he be supreme. And so anything that challenges Jesus for supremacy is of the utmost importance. And so um, certainly for my own self growing up in a Christian home as a pastor's kid, certainly the work I've done as a pastor, I think especially for white Christians, it's uncommon that there's a kind of deeply formed and well-thought-out biblical framework for how to think about and respond to white supremacy. And so um, over my years of being a pastor, it became increasingly critical to um, got, you know, grow myself in this and to continue to guide folks who are trying to understand how to follow Jesus, um, given some of these very real challenges to ourselves and to the world. I'm interested <clears throat> about your church. The River City Community Church, located in the West Humboldt Park, uh, Chicago. Tell me how the church came about, where it's located, and and what your mission is. Yeah, so we're an 18-year-old church. Um, I was on staff for all my 20s. I was on staff at a church you know well, Willow Creek Community Church in yes. the uh, su- suburbs of Chicago. And so I was, you know, back then in my 20s, uh, we had a large called the Gen X back then, kind of showing my age, you know, but a Gen X ministry, about a thousand young adults. And that's that's kind of where I learned pastoral ministry as a younger person. Uh, but as my faith continued to deepen, as my, uh, that it really brought me to, um, you know, one of the catchphrases we use at our church is that it comes from Marion Wright Edelman, who's the founder of the Children's Defense Fund. And she says, the most dangerous place for a child to live in this country is at the intersection of race and poverty. Mm. Um, each of those, each of those brings something different, right? Like poverty, we know from the Bible, the dangers of, I mean, you can be poor and have a vibrant life, but when you don't have access to community that's supportive, when you don't have access to resources, right? Poverty can be just a really dangerous death trap. And then, you know, in the first segment, we talked about some of the ways race is dangerous and the way to science, human value, and a method that's contrary to the person of God. And so when, when I felt God kind of continue to grow my, <laughs> your your book, Reluctant Leader. I'm really actually curious to read that because you know it's it, that would have described 
some of what I was working through at that time, but I really felt God saying, you know, not, not that I was even going to be able to solve any of these things, but that just, if the church is to be coming up against the gates of hell, as Jesus calls it, right, the gates of hell will not prevail, that I really need to be mindful of where the gates of hell were trying, gates of hell were trying to prevail. And so this idea of the intersection of race and poverty became kind of a clarifying call for me of like where church needs to be located. So West Humble Park in Chicago is one of the most intense intersections of race and poverty in the whole city. And so, yeah, we've been trying to faithfully participate in what God is doing in our community for these past 18 years and listen, learn, grow, and then contribute to trying to seek the shalom, the wholeness, the fullness of that neighborhood as well as our city at large. Daniel, uh, can you explain to us um, the shootings and the deaths we, we keep reading about in Chicago and are there answers? And uh, d- d- tell me your feelings about all that. Uh, well, I, I mean, I would build on what we just talked about, about the dangers of growing up in the intersection of race and poverty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the violence violence tends to accompany poverty, no matter what racial group it's part of, right? Um, and I think there's reasons for that. You know, one of the pastors I respect a lot, a black pastor near us, he always talks about the Garden of Eden and says, we're designed, as, as human beings, we're designed to experience abundance and fullness, right? That, that, that's our original design. We know that's what we're called for. And there's a lot of stages in between. But when you're in despair, when you're in poverty, when you're in a destitute situation, it just brings out the absolute worst of human experience. And so when, when you've got these kind of historically impoverished communities, and usually there's reasons for why they're historically impoverished. You know, usually there's very clear stomach kinds of reasons over the generations. So I think that's one element of it. And then the reason that we began to touch on in the first segment, um, race represents a completely different um, threat level and danger. And when you've got these, you know, we've got a profoundly segregated city in Chicago, although some degree that segregation can be seen all up and down our country. And again, that race is very tied to why we live in these segregated spaces. And so when we cut each other off and kind of create these gated off, you know, separated communities, when you start to get generation after generation of that, I think there's also um, kind of root causes that create uh, environments of despair. And so, um, you know, that's that's not a neat, tidy answer necessarily, but I I think those do, I think you can begin to connect dots from both of those in terms of violence being exasperated and also clues as to how to move out of that. Daniel Hill is with us. We've been talking about his book, White Lies. Uh, founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church in Chicago. Daniel, by the way, who are some of the uh, black preachers and pastors in our country uh, that you most admire? Um, uh, there's a lot in my neighborhood, my city. That I'm not sure how many names, you know, that you know, Pastor Charlie Dates is becoming more prominent. He's on the south side of Chicago and really admire the work that he's doing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Reverend Brenda Salter-McNeil, who's a pastor up in Seattle. She's somebody that's been deeply, deeply formative uh, in my life and who does a lot of work around racial reconciliation from the lens of the gospel. Uh, so, um, yeah, lo- 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 lots of pastors in Chicago as well who have really had a huge impact on my growth and development. How is Jesse Jackson viewed these days in Chicago? Um, I, I don't know if I could give a, I, I'm not real connected to his circle, so I, I'm a little bit hesitant. I, I mean, I, I certainly know, you know, Rainbow Push has a long legacy of 
doing justice kinds of work. And so I think there's there's certainly a respect paid to a lot of the on the ground stuff they're doing. But, you know, in terms of how he's viewed in different quarters, I don't know that I have a real good sense of that. Tell me your thoughts on Dr. Tony Evans in Dallas. Uh, yeah, I, I think Dr. Dr. Evans is fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I did my uh, graduate degree at Moody, and so he'd often would be a guest speaker and preacher when he'd come in there. So I learned a lot from him. So, um, yeah, and he's got such a, a record of longevity and endurance on this, even as he's, you know, I think he lost his wife this year, right? Yes, yes. Um, but continues to be, you know, a, a real herald and proclaimer of the gospel. So I'm very exceedingly thankful for his ministry. Tell me more about Moody Bible Institute, the Moody Church, I guess, and Dwight Moody himself. What can you tell us? Um, is there any way you can give me just a little more specific of a question within that? Well, like just, just the, the impact of the school and what it meant to you and what it means to the city of Chicago and uh, the young people coming out of there and uh, just— uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got Chicago roots, Daniel, and, uh, always was uh, quite, quite close to Moody. Okay. Yeah. You know, well, yeah, obviously Dwight Moody, Dwight Moody himself casts a long shadow, you know, in terms of both Christianity at large, but also in Chicago. Um, you know, the school is interesting in that it's located, um, in what back in its day would have been a really challenging area it was, you know, it, it butted up right against what was Cabrini Green back then which is, you know, essentially gone now. That was one of the most uh, uh, talked about housing projects in the country. So the original vision, I think, was that proximity to the urban poor would be part of the formation process for graduate students at Moody or for just students in general. So I think Moody, like lots of institutions, they're trying to kind of reckon and wrestle with the kind of gap between what their aspirations are, you know, and what they're able to accomplish. I think what Moody's probably most known for is sending overseas missionaries. I think there's just an abundance of overseas missionaries around the world. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know if they would say that being proximate to the city was a big part of their, you know, sometimes I think that's part of the struggle is it's like located right there, but kind of lives in its own world. But I don't mean that in any kind of a negative way. I just think that's just the challenge that a lot of us face is <laughs> trying to live up to the aspirations that we hope for ourselves. So I, I think that's the quest Moody is on, is to be able to form holistic disciples and to really lean into their proximity in the city is a real advantageous um, aspect of that. Daniel Hill has been our guest. Thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a wonderful week ahead, and we'll uh, see you next weekend. Thanks so much for joining us here, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Dr. Eamon Ibrahim, our guest in that first segment, A Concise Guide to the Quran. And then uh, Daniel Hill joined us. Uh, talking about his book, White Lies, and also about his church in the West Humboldt section of uh, of Chicago. And uh, I made mention of the book I've most recently written. It's called The Reluctant Leader. Uh, why are some men and women reluctant to step up and lead when the opportunity presents itself? Uh, why, are there fear- why are they fearful? Uh, why do they um, not take time to really seek out leadership opportunities. Get the book. Amazon, a good way to order it. The Reluctant Leader. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 
and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead.